Hello, I'm Michael Heyman, and you're listening to Changemakers. My guest today has been described as the new face of American fashion by Vogue's global editorial director, Anna Winter. But it's the face of the planet that drives Arizona Muse, the model, sustainability consultant, and environmental activist. She recently posted that climate change needs to hire coronavirus as publicists. And it is this sense of urgency of a world running out of time that is inspiring her determined advocacy and action for behavioral change before it's too late. Because, in Arizona's words, this season's must-have is the continuation of life on Earth. Arizona, welcome to Changemakers. A pleasure to have you on the show. Let's start with this season's must-have, the continuation of life on Earth. Pick up that story for us, that call to action. Thank you so much for having me here. I love conversations such as these, so I'm really looking forward to it. The continuation of life as we have it, let's just enjoy ourselves, right? I think that we get so bogged down in, in the climate change movement and in life in general, the hustle and bustle and just making money and getting food on the table that a lot of us, I've heard this so many times, looking back on your life, you think, gosh, I wish I just enjoyed it more. I wish I just spent more time with my kids when they were younger. No one ever says, oh, I wish I'd spent less time enjoying life. And I wish I'd spent less time with my kids. No one ever says that. So let's just all spend more time enjoying our lives because what I've come to realize through my activism and my my sustainability journey, as I call it, is that creating a connection with the earth, meaning having fun, doing stuff you love, being with people you love, that is all part of building a connection between yourself and the earth. This is the most important thing that all of us can do in the face of climate change. And I know that sounds a little bit petty and a little bit mundane, it, it doesn't because, you know, I, I interviewed Tristram Stewart, the, the Toast Ale founder, and he said that if you want to change the world, you have to throw a better party than those that are destroying it. I mean, is that part of this, part of your vantage point, actually, that you can see things through a different lens when it comes to issues like climate action and the future of, of the planet, that actually you've got something different, something new, something that can actually move people, bring joy to people, bring a different dialogue into the lives of people than the way that they consider they consider the future of climate change and the future of the world. So much so. And continuing on with that party analogy, I have been to some of the world's best parties, and yet I am having so much more fun now in my activism and my sustainable life than I did before I was living a sustainable life. And that is very true. <laughs> it's worth setting the scene here is because in the world of fashion, I mean, going back to the quote from Anna Winter, describing you as the new face of American fashion, everybody will talk about you as being one of the defining models of the age. You are defining yourself. Well, I, th- I think I think that's a fair, I think it's a fair and objective assessment of your career thus far. And I mean, but I think what's truly interesting is the commitment that you have made to use that position and that platform to make a difference on this question of the future of fashion, the future of climate, the future of sustainability. And I guess what you told The Telegraph in an interview last year, swapping climate depression for climate action. Let's talk about Arizona, the activist. What kickstarted that? Was there a lightning bolt moment where you just thought, I want to make a difference here. Yeah, definitely. Def- there are a few and they they kicked off different parts of my activism. So at first it was realizing that I didn't know where these clothes were coming from that I was modeling and I wanted to know. I felt like I should know. And as soon as I started doing a bit of research, I realized, oh yeah, I really have to know more about this. Then there was a moment where I walked on the streets with Extinction Rebellion 
And that moment was the moment that kicked off me as an activist, because until then I had been learning quietly on my own in my living room and hadn't called myself an activist, nor had I thought of myself as an activist. And that was a really important moment to be to realize that I can be an activist, that I, this is what I'm doing. What I'm doing is activism. And activism doesn't have to be shouty and it doesn't have to be aggressive. It can be whatever you want it to be. So I always in, in, encourage everyone, find your own inner activist. We all have them. They're hiding in there somewhere, ready to come out and have fun, really. But but I think there's also something about urgency. I, I read that a farmer told you once that humans do their best when they are in a hurry. Is, is urgency a big... Yep, that was Jack Algier. Jack Algiers, who's a um, who's a, a biodynamic farmer, who I met at the biodynamic conference held by the Biodynamic Association in America in 2019, I think it was, because 20 was a virtual conference, and that was a big phrase for me that we do do our best work in a hurry, because I'd been feeling quite a lot of anger and oh, just oh, why, what, how have we left it this long? How is it that the science has been out there for since the 1970s, but really before that, and that we have all these indigenous cultures behind us saying, this is how we used to do things. This is how it works. This is how we've always protected the earth. This is how we will always protect the earth. How is it that we're still in this place where in 2021, a lot of people still haven't changed anything and we're still just living a very, very normal life. So I was feeling annoyed. I was feeling super annoyed about that. And the phrase of humans do their best work in a hurry really helped me feel, okay, I don't need to be annoyed anymore. We're going to all do this together and we're going to do it fast. <laughs> and on the specific of climate, a, a lot of people will say we, we have left it too late, that actually we've got a very painful period coming. But there are others who have made it quite clear that there is still time, that there is still behavioural change, ingenuity and invention, and I guess respect for the planet that can that can change things. I mean, wh- where do you sit on that kind of, I guess, on that line between climate pessimism and, and, and I guess, climate, is it positivity or, 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 or activism? I would say I'm going to paint a slightly different picture. We're on the brink of climate change. However, the brink is not a moment. The brink is a window of time. It's quite a long window of time. We don't know exactly when it started and we don't know exactly when it will finish. But if we don't manage to change absolutely everything by the end of the window of time, it will be too late for everyone. Whereas right now it's already too late for some. I mean, look, there are millions of climate refugees who've already been affected to the point, to, to a fatal point, some people, but also to the point of just mass destruction in their life and their livelihood and their family. And let's just imagine for a moment, because for people like you and me who live in the Western world in cities, it's, it's so distant and remote, the idea that our homes would be destroyed by climate change, because it's so safe for me anyway, living in London is so safe. I live on the eighth floor, a flood is never going to hurt me, storms are never going to hurt me, the weather's really mild, farms are everywhere, my food is always there. So I can take for granted and I can look out my window every day for the rest of my life and I will not be affected by climate change. However, really important for people like me who will never be affected by climate change because we live in such safe places to make sure that we see it with our own eyes. So Google it, figure it out, go on YouTube and watch it happen because it is happening to other people around the world who are just as valuable as I am. Because it strikes me that there are two 
parallel parts of your story, both the activism and you mentioned the Extinction Rebellion moment and your actual sort of taking part in that, but also the knowledge and the thirst for knowledge, the quest to get more of it. Taking a, a business sustainability course at Cambridge actually asking you have yourself so much homework it's amazing <laughs> i've been doing a lot of reading i can tell you but but this but also making the point that we must keep asking why until we get to the truth what drives that in you because if people are tuning in thinking i'm going to hear the story of a career in fashion this is really the story of, of a career of an act of an activist who is using fashion and is part of a world where they can make their change in the industry in which they work what do you think are the the conditions that have created that person for us? I went to a Waldorf school, Steiner Waldorf School. Going back to what you were asking about truth, I am very into learning and I learn to the greatest detail that I possibly can. And I continue learning over a long, long period of time about the same thing. So I may re- I, I look at the same topic from many different angles. For instance, with plastic, I've read recycling how-to books from like 1992, just to see what they were writing about literature-wise then. Like not just how to recycle as a consumer, but books on how like industrial recycling works. Really boring stuff. Like so boring that you fall asleep in the book over and over again. I was like, I need to know this. I need to know. So I think this quest for truth and being open to the truth changing as well. Like for me, you know, uh, the one of the first things that I read about plastics is that biodegradable plastic is better. But then quite soon after that, I realized that, whoa, there's a lot more to know about biodegradable plastic. First of all, what is it made from? And if we're going to transition from all the normal plastics made from petrochemical-based products, which is from the fossil fuel industry, and we're going to transition into all plastics being made essentially from corn, because biodegradable plastic is made from corn, then we're not going to fix the problem, because corn is one of the most polluting crops on earth uh, alongside soy and cotton. So that's not going to fix the problem, basically. And also biodegradable plastic, it doesn't compost. It just falls apart into small pieces and is very, very destructive on the environment. So I went, okay, so let's stay open to more truth coming in later, basically. So what we can take from that is you're an evidence and detail person in terms of the way that you actually come to conclusions. You also earlier in life wanted to be an architect. Do you think design and creating solutions is also a part of your outlook? I think it's materials. I'm very, very interested in materials. I love materials, which is really strange to say, but I absolutely want to know everything about them. Everything. Leather, for instance, is not just leather. It did come from an animal, but it was tanned with a multitude of chemicals, probably in three different locations. For instance, all the leather in the US is... This is particular to cow leather. I'm not sure if this applies to sheep and goat. But then again, that that's another, I'm waiting for the true bits to come in. I'm, I'm staying open to those truths. But right now I know for cows, they all go to the slaughterhouse, at which point the meat is distributed back to the farmers who grew it. And the organic meat is kept separate, of course, from the conventionally grown meat. But the hides, the leather is just bought. All of it is bought at a flat rate by the abattoir, the slaughterhouse. And it's semi-tanned with a salt. And then it's put into a shipping container. And when the shipping container is full, it's shipped to China for to continue the tanning. So that is all a material, but it's actually a story of the world. That's why I love materials so much as you hear stories of the world all the time. <laughs> when you said I had no ideas how clothes were made, is that what you were thinking then in terms of what goes into them, the dyes, the story of where they've come from, who made them? That that kind of like explosion moment where you thought this needs to change or, or we all need to know more. Yeah. And it was a tip of an iceberg. No one was putting a menu in front of you and going, yeah, OK, learn these things. 
It was just a pulling in the fishing line of information. Like once in a, you, you find new stuff here and there and you don't know where to find it. And it was all very exciting in that sense. And I felt like an explorer, which was my other childhood wish. An explorer, <laughs> an explorer. Okay. I was going to say a detective. Okay. An explorer. So you wanted to break new boundaries. I feel like I fulfilled my wish of being an explorer because I was quite disappointed when I was young and I realized that I couldn't be an explorer because all the islands in the world had been found already. And now I am finding all the time new information that is going to save the world. It's not just finding new bits of the world. This is saving the world right now. So this is what I say to all my activists, friends, and also the activists who I'm not friends with, but admire and from a distance, because there are many who I admire. I'm so, so into activists. It's just incredible what they've done. When people see your activism and they see this great spirit, this great excitement about it, I think some will be surprised to hear you still describe yourself in some terms as an eco-hypocrite. You've described yourself in the, in the part. I mean, being hard on yourself is, is part of actually what gets you to the truth, actually. Is that is that an essential part of it, which is to not give yourself an easy ride in it? No, actually, no, not being hard on myself, but just being really honest about everything and being very matter of fact about everything. And and I am definitely like I cause enormous amounts of carbon emissions. I definitely do because I just live in a city for that one reason. Even during lockdown, I was I had higher emissions than people who are subsistence farmers. I just do, and that is the reality of being a Western person and living in an urban life. I also fly for my work still. I fly a lot less personally now. I really make a huge effort and work-wise. I'm the annoying model. He's like, can we shoot it in London in a studio, please? They're like, oh, but we wanted to go to a beach. I'm like, mm, let's save the beach and let's stay in London. <laughs> listening to you, it feels like you're listening to somebody that if you'd said, right, I'm interviewing Arizona Muse, Barrister or The Advocate, The Case Maker, that would feel like a very authentic think, summary of, of where we are in the discussion. But let's, let's discuss fashion and let's discuss the world that you are involved with on, on a day-to-day basis because you've taken aim at fast fashion. You've taken aim at the industry itself in terms of the contribution it needs to make and it could make. What's your assessment of where it is today? Fashion and me, because I am in fashion. I'm not not judging fashion from the outside. I am part of the industry. I'm part of the problem. I'm also part of the solution. And so together, we have a long way to go. We are at the beginning of the journey of change. And it's still a lot of greenwashing. It's very, very greenwashy, actually. And Some of it is deliberate and intentional and a lot of it is just accidental just because we don't know enough. And I think there's a a common misunderstanding that sustainability is something that if you read an article about it, you know about it. And it's very, it's really different. I mean, I have spent every single minute of my time for the last six or seven years educating myself. And that's how you get to a point of knowledge is you start and you really mean it and you want to do it. I'm lucky in the sense that I have a job that is not every day. And when I'm not doing it, I have completely free time. So I've had a lot more time than most adult working adults have, which I'm super grateful for. And I love that, that modeling has allowed this for me. We need to know the details. And I see a lot now in fashion that it's disconcerting how people make the false assumption about their own knowledge. They think they're quite knowledgeable. And I go, oh, 
wow, okay. So if we're if we're starting off from a place where the people inside the companies think that they know how to lead the company toward a sustainable future, and yet they've been the ones who were leading the company away from a sustainable future, I think that we need to readjust our idea of who can do this. I'm now a sustainability consultant, and I help brands to transition into a sustainable future, and I have very high standards of what sustainability means. Personally, why I do this model and why I don't want to be just an in-house head of sustainability is because because I think you need a third party. This is how consulting works, any kind of consulting. And so why is sustainability consulting different? The mirror, but I'm saying the mirror to hold to hold up the view of actually what are we looking at? But the thing that I would ask you is that a lot of the the sorts of activists that I, I interview, um, we've had a number of B Corporation companies on the show recently. What I would say is that kindness seems to be a big part of drives their intention. And that there is a an urge to do good that people would, when you write about things like Mother Earth and the nurturing and those sorts of things, they would really relate to that. How kind is the world of the catwalk, though, do you think, in terms of its ability to truly embrace that way? What happens if we replace the word kind with the word partnership? Then we can understand that the world of fashion is one based on dominance, very much based on dominance, which is an old paradigm that's been living for a long, long time. And we do live in most industries and sectors are based on the dominance model, even parenting sadly, is based on the dominance model. And that really needs to change. And this is the most exciting conversation that I have in my activism now and in the circle of the environmental movement is that we need to change the way we educate. We need to change the way we function in business into a partnership way. We need to change the way we function in marriages into a partnership way. Because when you're working in partnership, you don't even need to focus on whether you're being kind or not, because your focus is not on you. It's on the people around you, the relationships that you build. And how can you encourage those relationships and what can you do to serve those relationships? And that becomes a really fascinating journey that is very intellectual and also very practical all at the same time. And you can read many books about this. I'm reading an amazing one right now called How to Turn the World Upside Down by Nora Samander. And also Rianne Eisler wrote The Partnership Way and The Chalice and the Blade. These are really important books on this subject. I say here, my mom is the one who sends all these books in my direction. She's, she's been a big influence and she's, and she's right. She's been right about a weird amount of things, actually. One example, just because it's funny, is that about 10 years ago, she told me, oh, in her kind of annoying mom voice, she was like, oh, okay, so people are going to be moving away from cities, darling, and it's not going to be good to own property in cities. And I was like, mom, I mean, okay, maybe in 150 years, but not right now. And look, here we are, 10 years later, there's a mass exodus from cities. My brother just moved out of LA and he moved to Utah, to Salt Lake City, like many, many people have done. He found it so difficult to find a moving truck because they were all taken because so many people are moving out of big cities because they've realized I can work from home and why should I pay these high rents when I could have a whole house somewhere else? But do you think the world of, of fashion gets that? Because, I mean, I'm, the thing I'm sort of thinking about is that, you know, you've I've watched the super video about your experience of living on a farm, of call out actually to get closer to nature. But then I, I read something you said where you said modeling is the most amazing career for having kids because no one wants you when you just had a baby. And I thought in terms of the kind of the change that, that 
that the people you were thinking about when you said that need to go through to get with the program to basically sort of live up to the urgency of the now, if you will? What's the change? What's the kind of the behavioral change, the psychological change that needs to happen next, do you think? I would reference Yuval Hariri, who wrote Sapiens, because he says in there, I think near the beginning of the book, about how money is a fabrication and we believe in it, which is why it exists. So that can be applied to almost anything in life. If you believe in it, it exists. If you lift your head above water for a second and stop believing in the rat race and go, okay, so I'm a human. I live on planet Earth and I work in a corporation. Great. This is amazing. I can actually apply myself here to change the fabrication of what corporations are and how they operate because I can, because I believe I can. And I suppose the other thing from a belief perspective, is that making sustainability stylish is a big part of what people need to believe and need to see next. So tell us about share, repair, rewear and relove your clothing. It's becoming cool, finally. It really is. When I started this journey about six, seven years ago, as I said, it was so not cool to talk about it. I would sit down at a fashion dinner and talk to my seat partner about what I was interested in. And sure enough, I had about a minute and a half before they'd be like, ooh, and uh, and they'd quickly turn to the other side and talk to their other seat partner. <laughs> and now that's just not true anymore. People love talking about sustainability and they actually encourage me to talk about it, which I really love because that's all I want to talk about. And it is fun. I have so much fun being an activist and I still wear really nice clothes. I love my clothes anyway. And I do buy new things. When I'm buying something new, it's really important to me that I'm supporting a business who's doing things better. And one message on the on the the conversation, the really valid, important conversation about how sustainable clothing and sustainable items in general are more expensive. I am someone who feels so incredibly lucky right now that I have money. I don't have financial strain because I had a career, luckily, that paid me enough so that when COVID happened, I didn't go underwater. There are so many people who are not in that situation right now. So let's just take, if you're someone who is so lucky, like I am, it's your responsibility to spend your money in the right place, which means you will pay a bit higher for it, but you can. So please do it. Whereas if you don't have the right money to do that right now, please do not feel guilty about that. Buy what you can, just do what you can, educate yourself because that's free. These are my thoughts on that conversation. And it's a system change. And this is what activism is working towards, is making a system where nobody is left behind, where everyone can afford a sustainable version of whatever it is, a, a kitchen brush or a dress. And and when you know, you're know you a purveyor of luxury goods, you're a luxury brand, and you're listening to this and thinking, well, what's our future in a world where everybody is recycling, everybody is reloving and, and rewearing? I mean, how how does the world that you know would look at you as one of their own in terms of the, the fashion weeks around the world, how do they evolve and stay relevant in a world that might say, well, look, this is the face of consumption that that, that is becoming increasingly unacceptable? I think that consumers are realizing now that there's nothing luxurious about pain and suffering to create something for me. There's just nothing right about that. And luxury is not free from a supply chain that has really poor working conditions and sexual abuses and a lot of financial exploitation. So it's happening and these businesses realize that, wow, okay, we can no longer turn a blind eye to this and we need to accept that, yes, we have to change things and we need to do it really quick. And it doesn't matter whether you do it publicly or privately. There are plenty of companies who are choosing just to to, to make the changes and to never talk about them, which is absolutely 
absolutely fine. It doesn't matter how you choose to do them as long as you're doing them. That's the important thing because it is going to be irrelevant very soon. Luxury, if it's not completely sustainable in terms of materials and also labor and also transport because sending the same garment back and forth around the co- a world the world six times is just not interesting anymore and that that's called globalization of course that's where we decided oh it's cool to send the same thing around six times because it's super cheap to make it we'll grow the cotton in india then we'll send the cotton to china to be processed then we'll send it to australia to be dyed and then we'll send it to europe to be sewed but we'll send two panels of it to india to be embroidered because embroidery is great there and then we'll send the two panels back to europe and it'll all be sewed together and then oh then we're going to actually package it in plastic every leg of that journey but new plastic because we can't use the old plastic because it might get dirty <laughs> you do wonder how future generations are going to look back on us and the decisions we took in terms of what we considered luxurious or not. Tell us about how the pandemic has changed your world and, and, and your outlook. It's changed things a lot. I feel like it brought my future forward in a beautiful way. I imagined that I would retire onto a farm and have a garden when I was old. And, and now, luckily, I started living on a farm at 31 last year for seven weeks. It was amazing. And so that is all thanks to COVID. And um, so there are some silver linings. There really are. And it's brought nature a lot closer to me and my family and my children. Now, I'm really prioritizing that, that we spend time in nature and our our whole visual landscape needs to change because when you live in a city, your visual landscape is very angular and gray and concrete and hard. And when you start to spend a lot more time in nature, your visual landscape changes. And I think this is really impactful on children who never get their childhood back. So every moment for them really, really counts. And if you can give them as many minutes in nature as possible, you are impacting their entire rest of their lives. Mm. I mean, when when you hear somebody like Klaus Schwab of the World Economic Forum, he talks about the Great Reset, you know, that the pandemic is a rare opportunity to reflect, reimagine and, and reset our world. Do you think that's just good prose or do you think there is real intention now to try and get it right in a post-pandemic world i mean i mean how 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 close do you think you and 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 people that really want to affect change are in in getting there i think it's really incongruent the words that are being spoken right now compared to where the stimuluses are going because the stimulus packages are not they don't have big environmental stipulations on them at all. And that's really sad that big world leaders are talking about biodiversity and they're not putting stimulus packages to support biodiversity, not even to support regenerative agriculture. And that's kind of like the baseline of what we need to do. Agriculture is the simplest fix. We have to eat food and we have to wear clothing that's grown in soil. So like anything of natural fibers is grown in soil, cotton, wool, Leather, all of that is grown in soil. So it's agriculture. We're a big agricultural industry fashion. We don't really see that about ourselves, but we are. And if we were to just shift into regenerative agriculture within the next five years, which of course is not that difficult because regenerative agriculture is the most incredible job. So it would be a highly coveted job. It would be very easy to transition people into regenerative agriculture because if you're already a farmer, this is really sad and I'm really sorry to share this here, but we need to know it. Farmers suffer from much higher suicide rates than the average in every single country. It's just 
everywhere. And this is because they often are in heavy debt because they've been buying chemicals and buying heavy duty machinery. And occasionally they have a crop failure because they don't have a diverse system of plants. When you have a very diverse system of plants, you're, you're much less vulnerable to a crop failure because part of your crop may fail, but it's highly unlikely that the entire thing would fail if you have many, many species of plants and many species of animals all living together. But monoculture, where you grow one thing at a time in a huge field, that's very vulnerable to pests and to any kind of climate change. Is the call out then is that this needs to be about deeds, not just words in terms of things like the agricultural world and the things that large companies can do with contracts, with supply chains, with the way that they work with the world of farming? The call out is hiring experts who know what they're doing because there are so many environmentalists out there who are ready to help They've been trying to help for a very long time. 30 years ago, you know, they were banging their heads against brick walls. And I'm so grateful that I'm alive now and really excited about this now because I don't feel like I'm banging my head against a brick wall. People are listening. People like you want me to talk about this on your podcast. But I do often hear if the people who caused the problem try to fix the problem, they won't see as expansively as someone who's been fixing the problem for a very long time. And those people may not have the experience in government, or they may not have the experience in corporations. So here we come with partnership, work together. Environmentalists recognize that you don't know how to run a country, so that's fine. But help the people who do know how to run a country, how to not run it into the ground, so to speak, when it comes to the environment and social justice because that has been run into the ground in most places as well. So final question or final thought, Arizona, is because, you know, a lot of what we've been talking about, it feels like the well-deduced conclusions of thinking from the head. But I think there is also the heart for you as well, because in the Extinction Rebellion video, you said, I'm so scared about the world my kids will grow up if we fail to act. Is the role of being a mum, is the role of actually that thought of the future, is that also part of this for you? It definitely is. However, I've also been a mum my entire life. I had my son very young. I was 19 when I was pregnant and 20 when he was born. So I didn't have this big moment that many people in their 30s or 40s have when they have their first child and they go, whoa, everything's changed. It's all so different. For me, I, I was so young, my life hadn't really started. So I, I've had him my entire life. So I didn't have that big moment. But of course, it has a lot to do with my children and a lot to do with all the children, everyone's children, very much everyone's children. I feel, I feel a lot of empathy for children. My mom is a parenting coach. So I think I know quite a lot about how children are really suffering right now from the overuse of screens and the, and the under attention. They're not paid enough attention. And I know that sounds strange because when you pay kids attention, they behave badly. But <laughs> parenting is really complicated. And I'm not trying to say it's easy and I'm not great at it all the time either. It's, re it's really, really hard. And I think the best thing that you can do as a parent is to talk to other parents about what you're struggling with. Just say it. Say, oh, I was so shouty today. And then talk about it because you'll hear that everyone else is too sometimes. And then it, you feel better. And, and also then you can start to repair the damage that you may have been doing because we've all been doing a little damage. Think about your own parent. You know, we were not... We are scarred by our parents, all of us, for whatever reason. Sometimes it's a really small reason. Trauma doesn't always come in big, dramatic doses. There's a lot of trauma that lives on with people that they don't even know where it came from because it was so subtle and so just seemingly really small. And yet it 
helps us for the rest of but presumably, presumably can it can bring out the best in us as well can it Posit- no positive parenting the idea well we you know you've spoken about the trauma i guess the trauma of the trauma of parents i'm sure there's many people that will relate to that but i mean I, i'm just sort of thinking about i mean I, i'm a dad of of two young girls when i think about my best self and my best hopes they're almost always tied in with their future yeah really it is because i also think that talking about the mother and the heart mother earth feels like this for us and i've started to feel that Whereas before, if you'd asked me this, even just five years ago, even after I started my sustainability journey, I would have said, Mm-mm, no, like I'm, you know, I'm much more materialistic than that, that I don't really think of the earth as being a being, or I wouldn't have referred to the earth as her or she. But as I continued learning and, and particularly learning about indigenous ways of thinking and expanding my mind into thinking in new ways, other than the ways that I grew up with, I've started to realize that the earth feels like this for us. And that's amazing. So when you start to feel the earth, you receive all of this motherly energy and you feel really well taken care of and you feel really happy, really happy. It's a key to happiness. It's it's incredible how simple it is. <laughs> well, I think that is a wonderful place to draw our chat to a close because that idea about happiness and the future of it and actually how we capture it feels so much and so integral to what great change makers are all about and Arizona Muse thank you so much for joining me on the show today Michael it's been such a pleasure thank you so much 